0: And and so I think it's gonna it's gonna take you know fighting on a, a multi pronged front. It's gonna take you know fighting in the street. It's gonna take fighting you know on, on a policy level. I think it's gonna take you know reimagining you know what what business can look like and who we're giving the opportunities to in, in the entrepreneurial space. So even before you know COVID, even before these uprisings, you sort of look at small business and you sort of see you know the average small business if you're just looking. You know, you know, irrelevant of of race or gender, barely had a month worth of cash buffer, right? So we 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 already in our country sort of had a small business sector that was already sort of teetering, and and then you sort of look at at, at black business, you know, uh, you know, fifty eight percent of black businesses before this were already in financial distress, you know, and and so to me it's like how do we come out on the other side of this and and make sure that. We have banks and VC funds and angel investors who are investing at the earliest stages of entrepreneurship, so that these these companies don't start undercapitalized because it's hard to build in the you know from the beginning when you're starting under under resource. And so, what I, all I see is this is just a manifestation of of a bad beginning. And you know, I mean, since and you know since. In, in the last couple months, you know, forty-one percent of Black businesses have gone away, which is double the national average. So it, it's been hard across the board. Twenty percent of, of small businesses have gone away, but forty-one percent of Black businesses have gone away. And you know, again, I think that speaks to the undercapitalization, you know, of, of those companies and just like the precarious nature that they were already in to begin with, such that they couldn't they couldn't ride out any crisis.
1: Hey you, this is Takima, and welcome to Converge for Change, the business of social justice podcast. Each week we discuss what's really happening on the front lines for racial, social, and economic justice and highlight the amazing grassroots leaders across our communities doing the deep work of freedom. But don't get it twisted. We keep the conversation all the way real. Whether you're a fellow justice warrior or looking to better understand what's happening behind the veil, we unpack it here. Who am I, you ask? I'm the owner of Converge, a social justice consulting firm whose purpose is to accelerate the creation of a radically just new world. I'm Catherine's granddaughter, a mother of two boys, your East Coast round the way homegirl, and a proud Howard University graduate. Most importantly, I'm a Black woman, a leader in my community, and justice is my legacy. So let's get in this. All right, y'all. In our last show, we sat down with Jessica Norwood for the first episode in our series called The Future of Black Business. Jessica is the founder of The Runway Project, currently working with entrepreneurs in the Oakland area and making its way to Boston. If you missed the show, here are some of the gems dropped in Hot Topics. So Jessica and I met around the time of Katrina um, and we talked a lot about how Katrina exposed failures in the black community, uh, failures not in the black community, but failures in terms of supporting black community, and how in many ways COVID is doing that um, nationally, really exposing, you know, those um, inequities nationally. We also talked a lot about how the underlying problem um, that we're trying to solve as it relates to... Black folks in entrepreneurship is really about infrastructure. And so Jessica has this great quote where she talks about it's not a pilot problem, but it is a runway problem. So definitely check out her work with the Runway Project. We also talked a lot about white supremacy and patriarchy, and she posed a question to me that a fellow friend offered to her, but really, what would we be without patriarchy and white supremacy? And really, Igniting our imagination to think about what that looks like um, throughout all of our systems. And in particular, for this series, thinking about what that means in terms of entrepreneurship um, and financing uh, companies, black companies. We also talked a lot about what it means to listen and learn in this moment and to be an active listener before we um, jump out there and participate and act. That it's really important that all of us, You know, not just white folks, but also black folks and people of all colors and um, ethnicities and communities really sit and think about how they want to show up um, and do some of the internal work. But listening is a key, key, key element to, you know, what we need to be sitting in right now, listening to ourselves, listening to our own hearts, listening to one another uh, before we act. Lastly, we lifted up again the importance of Black women's leadership um, and really talking about how we can continue to support the leadership of Black women without ego um, and demanding leadership and integrity throughout uh, from all of our leaders um, and definitely supporting and lifting up and affirming black women's leadership in this moment. All right. So today I am speaking with a brother who has made his mark in New Orleans business accelerator community with the organization that sets out to develop and promote early stage underrepresented entrepreneurs in an aim to increase individual and community education and generational wealth. Today I'm talking with Aaron T Walker, founder of Campbellback ventures. Aaron Walker founded Camelback Ventures after successful careers as a teacher and attorney. Inspired by the Camelback homes of New Orleans, popularized by Free Blacks, Camelback's name grounds them in communities, motivates them to help entrepreneurs get over the hump, and reminds them that their ventures must break the back of the opportunity gap in one generation. Before starting Camelback Ventures, Mr. Walker founded a successful consulting practice and an education-focused expert firm. And while at the New York Fund for Public Schools, he helped raise $30 million for key initiatives, including the Young Men's Initiative, a project designed to improve the life outcomes for Black and Latino boys throughout the city. A graduate of the University of Virginia and the University of Pennsylvania Law School, Mr. Walker has also experience working in large international law firms. He is a fellow of the 22nd class of the Pahara Aspen Education Fellowship and a member of the Aspen Global Leadership Network. Welcome to the show, Aaron. So we've heard all about the amazing work you've done in your bio, but I always like to personalize the story and ask each guest to share a little bit more about yourself, your journey, how you got to this place. And if you would weave in one fun fact, one thing folks might not know about you.
0: Sure. Um, I might even be able to do two. Let's see. (laughs) So I live in New Orleans, but I was born and raised in New Jersey, Uh, the part of New Jersey that's the suburb of New York. I went to UVA for undergrad and was a first gen college student. I was a foreign affairs major and thought I would have some great career in the State Department or international politics. Ended up applying to Teach for America and moved to Philly to teach. I taught high school English for a few years. and you know, took that experience and, and knew that I really wanted to sort of make a life in education, but didn't think teaching was necessarily my calling and sort of felt there were a lot of systemic issues at play and wanted to, to work on those. And so at the time, there was like this drumbeat that education was a civil rights movement in my generation. And I thought, well, civil rights, that I means you go to law school and you like change the laws and you fix stuff. So I went to law school at Penn. And uh, I remember my first year of of law school, you take constitutional law, and we read a case called um, San Antonio v. Rodriguez, which was a Supreme Court case in 1972, where the court said that education was not a fundamental right. And I thought, well, the case decided this 30 years ago, and I've got still got three years of law school left, uh, or two-ish, two and a half-ish. Uh, and so, you know, I finished law school, and it was great. I made a lot of great friends, and I, I learned a lot there, and I would, I would do it over and over again. But I took that experience and went to a law firm, which was never the plan. But, um, you know, you leave law school uh, with a lot of debt. And I was like, this is a good place to be. So I moved to New York mm-hmm. to to work at a law firm. Eventually, went on my way back into education and the social impact space, you know, two things that people might not know along the way is. At one point in my life, because I had this these sort of international aspirations, um, I was I was learning many different languages, and, and I was pretty I was fluent in English and Spanish and like pretty conversational in Portuguese. Uh, since then, I am probably conversational in all three languages.
1: <laughs> what is language anymore? What is language? <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, so tell me how. You then get to Camelback Ventures and the work that you're doing now. So, tell us a little bit more about that and how your journey from a law firm to now supporting, you know, entrepreneurs.
0: Yeah. So, as my wife likes to tease me, I've been playing entrepreneur for the last 10 years. Um, The last seven, probably most successfully. You know, Camelback is the third thing I have started. So, I, I feel like I've seen the breadth of entrepreneurial failure and success from something that didn't really work at all to something that was working, but I thought to myself, this is not how I want to spend ten years of my life, even though I, I could see how I could build this into a business to Camelback. And I think really was the first two experiences in particular that sort of brought me to Camelback because I had just the first hand knowledge of what it meant to be an entrepreneur of color and what those challenges were and just like the lack of access to coaching and capital and connections and and meeting people along the way who were who had the same story as I did around around lack of access to those things and I thought well what if i could build a place and a platform that could elevate the genius that i knew already existed in our in our communities and particularly in the social impact space where i think a lot of ideas are pointed towards communities of color but we never are the the starters and the founders of those things and so you know that that's what really brought me to camelback was sort of saying like that that is the legacy that I want to build.
1: Absolutely. So that's super interesting. I I actually don't know if you know this about me, but um, and you are too, right? You're an Echoing Green fellow.
0: I was. I I have never won a fellowship, <laughs> <laughs> even though I run one. So yeah, I, I, I I with all the people I say no to. <laughs>
1: So I was echoing Greenfellow, you know, when this whole idea of social enterprise um, was really hot. And so um, that definitely uh, resonates with me uh, because even some of those spaces aren't necessarily built for us. Right. Like they're also, you know, even when folks were investing in that, it wasn't like they were investing in it um, in a way that was going to support, uh, continue to support my journey as a black woman and leadership. So I want to kind of dig in a little bit more, coaching, capital, and connections. Want to say more about how you identify those things as kind of the key missing ingredients for the success of uh, entrepreneurs of color?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, sort of thinking about myself, which is, you know, before I started playing entrepreneur, I worked at a place called the Fund for Public Schools in New York City, which was a venture philanthropy. (laughs) where we had a whole boatload of money to invest in a whole lot of innovative ideas and entrepreneurs. And, you know, I just saw firsthand how important money was to that equation. And then when I jumped off to do something on my own, how hard it was to raise money. And I just knew that was, that was a key piece of it was just like access to capital. Like you can do a lot of things, but you still need money. And, you know, we, we know historically one of the, the, the byproducts of the racial wealth gap. is just, you don't, we often don't have the networks to go ask a friend or ask an uncle for $50,000. They would not mind losing so you can go pursue your entrepreneurial dream. Um, So that was like the capital piece. But then you know, when we did the pilot for Camelback, I sort of had this idea around coaching capital and connections, but I didn't have any money, so I uh, sort of self-funded the pilot, which is not saying much because I am not independently wealthy. So we we told those five entrepreneurs, I have no money to give you, but I'll be your coach and I'll and I'll sort of connect you to to resources and to people. And and what we saw was just how far you can also get entrepreneurs. Through coaching, right? Like, you know, sort of talking, you know, talking about your experience and like, how are these places set up to support entrepreneurs of color? And some of it's just like coaching. I mean, you think about people who are performing at the highest levels in the public eye, whether it's athletes or other people, they have, even though they're the best in their profession, they still have coaches. I think entrepreneurs need the same thing. And then the connections is just a word for social capital, you know? Like, yeah, sometimes it's just like who you know. And again, like one, I think one of the legacies... Um, of, of apart you know American apartheid is just the fact that a lot of people of color lack the social capital, um, which is you know probably a fancy word way of saying like proximity to whiteness for all, for you know mm-hmm. all reasons that will allow them to you know pass go enough to collect the you know the resources that they need.
1: So I want to sit with this conversation about money and capital for um, a little bit, a uh, little bit more. I think um, oftentimes, especially, you know, in the social sector, we have this negative um, idea about about money. We do know that money has been um, used oftentimes to subjugate communities of color. Um, so as you think about kind of you know, liberating this idea of capital and investing in entrepreneurs of color, and also as we sit in this moment of uprising in our country where where, where there is a real conversation happening about reparations and what reparations what it means right to for that to to be monetized right to uh invest capital in communities what have been your thoughts as these conversations um are starting to come up yeah
0: you know there was there was you know, there's there's this idea that there's there's two ways to to close the racial wealth gap. One is through inheritance, and the other is through entrepreneurship. And when I think about the first piece of that around inheritance, you know, again that that is like the accumulation of built up wealth, you know, generation after generation that you know some people have in America more than others, and so you know either we have a choice we can create policies that will allow people of color to generate those returns generation over generation you know for the next you know several hundred years or we can sort of figure out ways to you know have it take less than 228 years
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know for 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 that to happen and i feel like that's that's the conversation um I feel like that's the conversation that we're having, which is we can't sort of take this ahistorical look and say, well, you know, things are equal now, and that's even a questionable statement, so let's just start running the race. It's like, how if we're going to run this race, how do we make sure that everyone is at the same starting starting position? And, you know, what's the saying sort of like truth rises to earth? You know, uh, and so I think I think at some point, you know, we we all just sort of have to deal with what's true, and I feel like our country is in that moment right now where we have an opportunity, you know, we have an opportunity to do that. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I, I just started this book called uh, My Grandmother's Hands, and I'm only a couple chapters in, but, you know, the author talks about this idea of clean pain and dirty pain, and I, I think we're sort of in this moment right now where we, have, we can either deal with this pain uh, in a clean way or a dirty way. mm mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. The various responses that folks in the U.S. are having to, you know, what I've been calling the reckoning, you know, a lot of healing work, a lot of reparation work, a lot of atonement. And, you know, and then beyond that, you know, what does that look like to make people whole again? So I want to segue a little bit into talking some more about money, but talking about it in the philanthropic space. You just wrote a letter that was published in The Griot. We're going to make sure it is linked here (laughs) and folks have a chance. I really enjoyed this letter, but it was on racism and philanthropy and the trials of being a Black founder. So just for our readers, I want to read a, a quick quote from it. And then I'd love to hear like... What inspired you to write this? You clearly dug deep. It is also, you know, a lot of courage to put yourself out there. So there's this quote where you talk about the Huxtables. So for all I learned from the Huxtables, the 1980 sitcom family, what I never saw was how this Black family dealt with pain. I know they didn't arrive without struggle, nor did they live absent of pain. I also wonder if they, in part, were the example of Black excellence because they didn't talk about their pain. Talk a little bit about this article and and what moved you to publish this and share this with the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was a two year journey. You know, I, you know, maybe you've had this experience of having something that just kind of, kind of breaks you a little bit or, you know, pun intended sort of breaks the camel's back, you know, and uh, you know, I just, I just had, you know, a series of interactions with with one philanthropist and um, I don't know, one day you just, your your cup runneth over with just kind of like frustration and, I started just like writing this, you know, writing what I thought was going to be an email at the time. Uh, and, you know, like sometimes you realize maybe I should just send this to a few people first.
1: <laughs> maybe I should just walk away, see how I feel
0: tomorrow. <laughs> Let me just check. In, in part, you sort of do it because you kind of know your your line stepping a little bit. And you just want to see what your inner circle thinks about your line stepping, or maybe walk you back from the edge. And so, you know, that's that's what they did at the time. And in many ways, I'm glad that they did that because I think, I think the way that it turned out this time was 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 better. Uh, and so I let it sit for a couple of years. And after the George Floyd murder, mm-hmm. I don't know something. Just I don't know you know you're just like watching tv you're seeing all this stuff happen and for some reason one one evening my mind sort of went back to that to this you know email that i never hit send on and i read it and you know it was way longer than what i what i published and i just thought to myself like i see a lot of parallels between like what i was feeling and you know what country is going through right now and no way to compare, you know, murder to what I was going through. Um, so they're, they're, they're not equivalents. But what I recognize is that there are just so many different ways that society has its neck, I mean has its knee on the neck of of black people in this country. And I just thought I should write about that. You know, I should I should tell that story and I feel like part of the way that we arrived to this place in our country right now in part is because stories were being told that we couldn't turn away from anymore. Right. You know, we had video now, you know, obviously when you're fundraising, you can't walk around with video cameras or anything like that, but it doesn't mean that we didn't experience it. And it doesn't mean that we can't, we can't tell those stories. And I just thought to myself, if there was ever a time to sort of speak the truth and speak it loud, it it would be now. And you know, for for myself, but also for the 84 fellows that we've supported over the last six years who are, you know, taking the $40,000 that we are investing in them and whatever else they can sort of accumulate, who probably feel even less of an ability right, to say those things, right. but they're experiencing them. And I sort of felt like, you know, here I am and, you know, it's not perfect, but I I have privilege and I, and, you know, and we've all came back to a certain place. And so at some point you got to start using your, you got to start using your chips.
1: You sure do. And you know, Aaron, I came from the field of philanthropy, right? And so, you know, your letter not only spoke truth to power from the perspective of a grantee, someone who was seeking investment, it also spoke to a lot of us in the field who are black and on our watch have to witness this and sometimes are complicit in it as well right like and and so i also want to share with you that it is it's resonated and it was needed not just by the folks on you know the receiving side of the table but folks on the other side who have been doing as much as they can to move as many resources and endure you know, that type of abuse inside of philanthropy. So just really wanted to to thank you. I've shared it widely with many of my colleagues in the field. And in many ways, that courage gives, your courage gives them the cover and the courage to fight more inside of those institutions, right? Because of the power dynamic, who talks back to philanthropy, right? It is the most unaccountable sector you know it has this guise of benevolence when we know in fact the 501c3 model and other things have been used to in many way control communities of color and keep us you know and and keep us subjugated in some some way so you know i don't know if you meant for it to have that impact but you know i just want you to know that beyond the folks that you were thinking this was going to support there's also been this other ripple effect and i think folks are really appreciative of you stepping out.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, look, I, I think, uh, you know, my, my hope is, you know, if, if I tell one story and, you know, so it might encourage someone to tell another and it's an invitation, right? It's it's an invitation to, to create something different and hopefully those who, who, who want to take up that invitation, we can do it together.
1: Awesome. So now let's talk a little bit more. Um, you know, this series really is bringing folks on the show who I know because we've interacted in some ways and I've admired you from afar in terms of your thought leadership, you know, bringing folks on to help us begin to imagine a future. We're in the midst of a pandemic. You know, I have no belief that there'll be a vaccine by December and we'll be back to business as usual. We're in the midst of an uprising. The world is changing. The ground beneath us is changing. How what, how is that sitting with you? And and what are your thoughts about about the future? The future of of black business, of black entrepreneurship. What are what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think you know we uh, we are living in you know what I I believe to be you know once in a once in a lifetime opportunity to to sort of change who we are as a country and as a nation. And so, in many ways, to me, it's it's like a it's like any virus, you know, which is you you it it sort of gets worse before it gets better, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that it it is it is painful to see and painful to live through that. But you know, I sort of walk with this faith that you know this is part of what's necessary to get to the other side, you know, of, of where we are right now, and that. Man, whatever is on the other side of this is better be damn glorious. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, as Asada said, we have nothing to lose but our pains, right? Like this is definitely this has been a lot. <laughs> I'm really, really curious about you know, all of this stuff is changing. You support you know entrepreneurs of color. What are you thinking of? Is the future of of entrepreneurship? How do we need to reimagine? Business, um, black business, black wealth building um, in the future.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this this incident is sort of showing us the cracks that already existed. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my you know, one of my colleagues, Kelly, always says this thing to me that you know I, I really like, which is, you know, that because there are disparities in the crisis, there are going to be disparities in the recovery. <clears throat> And so, you know, for me, that that is a clearing call just to sort of re- remember that, you know, like this is a critical space to make sure that there aren't disparities in the recovery, mm-hmm. you know. And you know, I think those who are who are native to New Orleans, and who live through Katrina can sort of talk about talk about that in a way that I can. not You know, I moved to New Orleans in, in 2014, but I think there are a lot of parallels you know, and so, you know, I'm looking at this moment trying to say to myself, what can I do? What can Camelback do to make sure that there are not disparities in the recovery so that we don't look up at this moment and say that this was a moment that further entrenched the inequities that it, that exist? And, and so I think it's going to it's going to take you know, fighting on a a multi-pronged front. It's going to take, you know, fighting in the street. It's going to take fighting, you know, on on a policy level. I think it's going to take, you know, reimagining, you know, what what business can look like and who we're giving the opportunities to in in the entrepreneurial space. So even before, you know, COVID, even before these uprisings, you sort of look at small business and you sort of see, you know, the average small business, if you're just looking, you know, you know, Irrelevant of of race or gender, barely had a month worth of cash buffer, right? So we 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 already in our country sort of had a small business sector that was already sort of teetering, mm-hmm. and, and then you sort of look at at, at black business, you know, uh, you know, fifty eight percent of black businesses before this were already in financial distress, you know, and and so to me it's like how do we come out on the other side of this and and make sure that. We have banks and VC funds and or angel investors who are investing at the earliest stages of entrepreneurship, so that these these companies don't start undercapitalized because it's hard to build in the be, you know from the beginning when you're starting under under resource. And so, what I, all I see is this is just a manifestation of of a bad beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, I mean, since and you know since. In in the last couple months, you know, forty one percent of black businesses have gone away, which is double the national average. So it, it's been hard across the board. Twenty percent of, of small businesses have gone away, but forty one percent of black businesses have gone away. And you know, again, I think that speaks to the undercapitalization, you know, of, of those companies and just like the precarious nature that they were already in to begin with, such that they couldn't they couldn't ride out any crisis.
1: So um, I'm a big fan of Charles Blow. You know, he writes for the New York Times, um, Native Louisianian. And a few weeks ago, he was on Oprah special and in it, you know, she asked, and I want to ask you this question, you know, w- what are we asking for in this moment? You know, what is the demand in this moment? His response was, well, if our life is at stake, we're asking for everything. <laughs> you know, we need to be bold, um, balls to the wall. Like we need to ask for everything if um, the potential cost is our lives, right? You know, like you said, the knee of this society is on the neck of Black folks in so many ways. So um, I want to put that question to you. What do you think we need to ask for in this moment?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think if you're a business owner, you, you know, you you have to ask whatever you think you need double it and the reason i say that is one because i think many of us myself included sometimes ask for what we think we can get Uh and not what we think we need so whatever in the moment you think you need you probably need more um because you have you know we have you know internalized this idea that you know we not we might not be able to get what we what we want so I think you know just very tangibly, you know whatever whatever that might be whether it's whether you're raising money whether you're asking for a raise whether you're trying to to buy a home and get get financing you know I I think just you know keep keep pushing in those keep pushing in those ways uh, to me is is like the biggest thing that 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 business owners can do but I think the other part of it is you know. Pushing on this analogy with the the knee on the neck, it's not just getting up, right? Because that that is that is just like to me the bare minimum. Okay, you know there. And so, what does you know what does that repair look like? And you know, I guess I just sort of borrow some ideas from restorative justice, which is I think that you know it's up to the to the aggrieved person to tell the aggrieved. to the person who, is, who has has a grievance to tell, you know, the perpetrator, here here's what's going to make me whole. And I think that's different for each one of us, you know. And so as much as I want to have like a, this beautiful answer for all of us, I think each one of us, you know, ha- has what that is and we, we shouldn't be afraid to speak it.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. I think uh, racism, sexism, you know, all of it has impact. us this- impacted all of us um, in similar ways and in some very specific ways. Um, And this is definitely a a time of atonement and healing. Um, And I think there's so many folks who want this to be a moment, right? They want this to be a statement. They want this to be that. And, you know, I keep telling folks, no, we're going to have to sit in this for a while, right? We're going to have to give, you know, Black people just the opportunity to figure out what they need, to be able to answer the question Um, because we don't have the privilege, to your point, right? Like we have operated... Uh, mostly from a space of scarcity, and so we only ask for what we think we can get. Um, and the idea of asking for what we deserve um, is, in many ways, novel and radical. Uh, so I so appreciate you know you sharing that with us. So as we wrap up the the interview, I've been doing this thing with everyone. Um, it's I've really been enjoying this. Um, I think I know one answer to your question. <laughs> um, so I these rapid fire questions with, with all my guests. And um, so I'll ask the question and give you a moment to sort of sit with it, contemplate it and share what comes to mind. Um, you ready? Yep. All right. So the first question is how would you define freedom?
0: It's a complicated question. <laughs> I just say the, the, the ability to choose.
1: Hmm. Yes. What inspires you to keep fighting?
0: You know, there's the the thought of what would happen if I didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's this there's this Goody Mob song that I really like uh, called "Fight to Win" that I sort of just you know hum to myself sometimes. But one of the you know one of the lyrics is. You know, just talking about this idea of, of not being a savior, but being a soldier and that, you know, you sort of fight because it's just what must be done and the fear of what what would happen if you didn't do that. And so that's just sort of what, what's always in my mind is like, if I'm not fighting, what, what's the alternative here? And I don't like that alternative.
1: We're going to keep on fighting. All right. So last, last one is who is your personal hero?
0: The, this is the question that you were saying. You, you <laughs> so definitely one of them is, is one of my baseball personal heroes, Jackie Robinson, for for a lot of reasons. My favorite sport growing up was baseball. Um, you know, just sort of really admired like who he was and what he stood for, not only in baseball but you know way before he broke the color barrier. Um, you know, way before Rosa Parks, you know, refused to, to move. You know, he refused also to sit in the back of the bus and got court martialed for it. And so it was just, I just sort of have always admired his, you know, that he stood by his principles in, in all different aspects of life. Um, but I will also just put my mom in there. You know, um, I was, re- you know, I was raised by my mom. Um, my my parents got divorced when I was eight, and so definitely my dad was a part of my life, but raised by my mom. And you know, as a parent now, have just like, you know, deep deep respect. I mean, I always had deep love for her, but deep, deep respect for what it means to uh, raise black children and particularly, um, you know, black boys. And so, you know, like I think she did all right with me and even better with my brother.
1: <laughs> wow. Awesome. Awesome. Aaron, thank you so much. And thank you for um, the work that you do at, at Camelback Ventures. Um, can you let our guests know how to follow up about the work that you do and stay in touch um, and, and, Yeah, how can they find you?
0: Definitely. So you can check out our website, camelbackventures.org. And then if you want to follow us on social media, it's just camelbackorg um, on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook.
1: And read his article in Griot, which we will definitely uh, link to. Aaron, thank you so, so, so much for sharing with our audience. I have a feeling this won't be the first time we call you and ask to hang out. Um, but, but I really do appreciate you spending some time with us and helping us build this little platform to have conversations with cool folks who want to change the world.
0: No, thank you for having me. It's been, it's been a lot of fun.
1: Awesome. Welcome back, Warriors. By now, you know we have a few rules on the show. Number one, we keep it real. Number two, you've got to be an active listener. There is no progress without the work. So today we put in the work. Text the phrase CHANGE, C-H-A-N-G-E, to 504-676-5393. That's my personal number, and I'm going to be waiting to text you back. Again, the number is... 504-676-5393. I'll respond with a link to the website where you can get more information on today's topic and about what you can do to move the movement. All right, so thanks again to Erin for talking with me today. If you joined us somewhere during the interview, let me break down for you what we discussed. So first of all, Erin talked a little bit about a book he was reading and this question of whether or not We will deal with the pain that we are experiencing in America in a clean or dirty way. I love this because I do think we are at an inflection point where we absolutely have a choice for how we are going to face what I've been calling the reckoning. um, And really decide as a country, as a nation, as a community, how we're going to show up in this moment for one another, right? Um, And in many ways that showing up requires a sacrifice of all of us. We also talked about access to capital as we continue the conversation around the future of black business and how access to capital in many ways has been about proximity to whiteness um, and that the pandemic, the riots that we are experiencing have all to do with black people talking about um, making them whole in, in ways that our communities have been um, underinvested in and uh, oppressed over the years that this idea of access to capital um, is critical when we talk about reparations and making communities whole. Lastly, we talk about black entrepreneurship um, and the work that we need to do. I thought Erin really nailed it on the head that Black entrepreneurs should, in this moment, be asking for twice as much uh, in recognition of the sacrifices and the underinvestments um, that have resulted in, you know, capacity um, issues, uh, the ability to you know, acquire wealth over generations that in, in this moment it's it's really critical, um, as Aaron stated, for, for us to ask for all that we deserved. You know, in the last three months we saw forty one percent of black businesses closing, many of whom hardly had cash flow going into this pandemic. So a reminder to all of you all out there, um, this is a moment for us to really get clear about what we need and to ask for all that we deserve. Also, please check out Aaron's open letter in the grill. He took two years to finish this letter, a letter that he wrote to philanthropists as a social justice entrepreneur. Um, And I think this letter really speaks a lot to the Struggles that Black founders have, either in the you know social entrepreneur space or in the you know business op- entrepreneur space, um, and this whole idea of having to pander for for capital and the toll that it takes on those of us who um, are trying to raise money to bring our dreams and businesses. You know, alive. So definitely, definitely check it out. And again, um, we applaud you, Erin, for using your platform and being brave enough to write this and let the world read it. All right, y'all, it's that time uh, when we recognize another female leader in our community doing big things. So for this segment of Hey Sis, I See You, I'd like to acknowledge, congratulate, and bring much deserved attention to none other than Judy Reese Morse. A New Orleans native and Loyola University graduate, Judy went on to receive a master's degree in public administration from American University in Washington, D.C., where she was selected as a U.S. Presidential Management Fellow. She has served at all three levels of government, working early in her career in D.C., on Capitol Hill for Congresswoman Lindy Bobbs. Later, she worked at the Louisiana Lieutenant Governor's Office as the Chief of Staff for Mitch Landrieu, and then as Deputy Mayor in the Landrieu Administration here in New Orleans. During her time in D.C., Judy worked at the National Public Radio as Director of New Audience Development and Director of Corporate Communications. Prior to her time at NPR, she worked at WWL-TV New Orleans, gaining experience in production and management. In 2018, Judy Reese Morris was named the new president and CEO of the Urban League of Louisiana, being the third woman to lead the 80 year old civil rights organization. She is working to expand the Urban League's programming and advocacy across Louisiana, making the case for equity and economic self reliance for those served by the Urban League and increasing the level of engagement with Louisiana residents. A strong leader and senior executive with nearly 30 years of experience in government not-for-profit and media judy has proven her ability to visualize innovate communicate design policy and programming and build effective partnerships that deliver results and demonstrate impact we love you judy reese morris we thank you for all that you do every day for our community All right, y'all, thank you for joining me for another episode of Converge for Change, the business of social justice. I hope you enjoyed hearing from my guest today, Aaron Walker from Camelback Ventures. So, here's how you can keep in touch with Aaron and keep track of his work on Instagram at Camelback Ventures, Facebook at CamelbackOrg, Twitter, also at CamelbackOrg, and in LinkedIn, you can find them at Camelback Ventures. So next week, join me for our next series on the future of philanthropy and a conversation with Edgar Villanova from Brooklyn. He is the Senior Vice President of Programs and Advocacy for the Schott Foundation for Public Education and an author of the award-winning book, Decolonizing Wealth. Until then, I am Takima.
2: Because ultimately what what happens in organizations, um, if you haven't read just the amazing work that's been done around white dominant culture, white supremacy culture, mm-hmm. you know in philanthropy, it just seems a little bit more like pervasive and multiplied because we are, at its core and a, a sector that was built off of exploit exploiting people of color, right? And so, you know, wealth that was built from sl- off of the slave trade, off of genocide, off of stolen land, that legacy wealth that now sits in the coffers of foundations. And to be a person of color working inside of that is traumatizing in one level, but to also be in the position to have to pander and kiss that of people to try to get a crumb of resources back to communities of color is just really, really painful. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I talk about the position that a lot of us played as being the house slaves, because in the first part of the book, I give a plan, it's a plantation analogy. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like being understanding that you are still from uh, a community with no power. But yet you do have some assumed privilege by being on the inside of this this very privileged space. But you are still reminded on a regular basis where you came from, who you are, and that you have no power, but trying to exercise a little bit of privilege that has been um, awarded to you to get money for your people. And so I think the pain points that I outline in the first part of the book are just actually about the origin of wealth in the first place and how philanthropy came to be. My personal experience as a indigenous person who faced like forced assimilation to a culture that was uh, not there for the liberation of my people. <laughs> right. um, and even down to how I dressed and what kind of car I drove um, to understanding and learning this these crazy power dynamics that exist between funders in the nonprofit sector and the dance that, that that nonprofits have to do to, to get money and what it feels like to be on the side, that side of the table, like asking for money and begging for money to do your work.
1: Hey, you, are you following me yet? How else will you be the first to know what's next? You can find all of my podcast episodes on my website, www.convergeforchange.com under the podcast tab. Follow me on social media, on Facebook at Converge, for F O R change on Instagram at I M Takima and at Converge For Change. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast library like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also catch the show live on wbok1230.com, or if you're in New Orleans, just adjust your radio to wbok1230 AM every Saturday from 12 to 1 p.m.